My first week I spoke about who do you serve? The second week I spoke about who do you believe? This week I'm speaking about who do you love? Now, I don't know. If I was to ask you the question, who do you love? Just open question like that. I wonder what your first response would be. It's usually best to ask small children this, because the first response is usually sweets or ice cream or something like that. Occasionally you might get mummy. (laughs) Sometimes you might even get daddy, after they've thought about it. But if I ask an adult, who do you love? I think you would get some very interesting responses. And I think it would depend on how quickly your brain kicked in. Now, if you are husband and wife, and somebody says to the husband, who do you love, and his wife is standing next to him, if he's got half a brain, he will say, my wife, of course. (laughs) If he hasn't, if he's not thinking quick enough, he can get into an awful lot of trouble. So, if the answer is not my wife, but is football, (laughs) he could be in some real hot water. But when the Bible talks about love... I will suggest to you, we now today have a very different concept of love to love that's spoken about in the Bible. Because the problem is, we watch movies. Um, Well, okay, let us say, and I know this is stereotyping, but let's say the ladies in the room all enjoy their romantic uh, movies, yeah? You know, lovely happy end, lots of tears, really handsome guy, far better looking than your own husband, um, you know, who falls in love with this wonderfully beautiful girl and it all comes together after a lot of heartache and it's all nice and, and sweet and light and everything's wonderful. Um, while us men are watching action movies and blowing things up, you know, we call it tough love. But love in the Bible isn't like a movie. It's interesting, something we don't understand in our English language is that there are different words for love in the Greek language. So, this is going to be interesting for the signer here. Um, There are effectively two major words. There is a third word as well, which is probably more affection than love. But there is a word which um, is called, in Greek is agape. That kind of love is self-sacrificing love. It's a love that is so strong, it means that you give to others. It's not about satisfying your own self. Then there is eros, which is the word that we use to get our English word erotic. And that is lustful love. That is entirely consumed with sexual desire, with lust, with very selfish love. There is also philo, which is um, (laughs) the root of my name which is um, my name, for instance, in case you didn't know in Greek, Philip means lover of horses. Now, unlike one dear sister in this place, I ain't really big on horses. Well, I don't mind the 105 that I've got in my motorcycle. That's all right. I love those horses. They're great fun. But um, I can't say that the four-legged version do a lot for me. They're very pretty to look at, but don't ever find me on one. But Philo, it's it's an affection. So, I would feel an affection towards various things. You could be 
you know, like your football. It's probably not your all-consuming passion. For some people it is. But really the love I want to concentrate on here is the love of God. And how God spoke about love through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And John chapter 14 is a really nice chapter in many ways. It's a very reassuring chapter to read. But it comes with some major challenges. So for instance... What does Jesus say in John chapter 14? Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father and I too will love them and show myself to them. Now God's concept of love is not lust, it's not selfish, it's an all-consuming self-sacrificing love. It's very wonderful. But did you notice how that started? Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. Some people say to me, yeah, yeah, I I love God. But then you look at their lives and you think, no, you don't because you disobey and break his laws all day. And one of the first things, if you want to understand what it means to be a Christian, one of the first things you will understand is that you don't keep God's commands and that's the reason why you so desperately need the love of God. Because we have all failed. The Bible, I quoted it the other week, says we have fallen short of the mark. It's the idea of an archer firing an arrow and he misses the target. He's not hitting the bullseye. God, you could keep it simple and say, well, take the Ten Commandments from the Old Testament. You say, well, I don't steal. Um, And I've never killed anybody. Uh, And, um, well, okay, I only tell white lies. The Bible just says lies, full stop. He's wrong. I wonder why lies are such a big thing for God. Well, sometimes a lie is, you know, well, I didn't actually tell a lie, I just didn't tell all the truth. That's a lie. But what does the Bible say about lies? It says, Satan is the father of lies. And when he speaks, he lies because that is his nature. So if you're a liar we could say, just like Jesus said to the religious leaders in his day, you are of your father, the devil. Mm. See why Christianity is a pretty tough religion, actually. Because it demands things. But God's word says you shall not lie. But I've given you the easy commandments. Right? Think those are hard. These are easy. What's commandment number one? You will have no other gods before me. I am number one, says God. Wow. Can you keep that commandment? What's the most important thing in your life? What's the thing, the all-consuming love of your life that's most important? Do you know what? If it's not God, if he hasn't got first place in your life, you're not keeping God's commandments. Now, you say, well, all of a sudden, this John 14, when it starts and says, let not your hearts be troubled, Believe in God, believe also in me. 
It all sounds reassuring. It's absolutely right. Jesus was speaking to his disciples and he was encouraging them, but he was also making it plain the cost of loving God. First of all, he clarifies with his disciple, Philip, shares the same name as me. Philip says, show us the Father. He says, you've seen the Father. God the Father is in me and I in him. I am God. I'm standing here in front of you, Philip, and the words that I speak, they're not just the words of a man, they're not just my own, they are the word of my Father. They are the word of God. So we can't ignore them. People say, oh, well, there are many ways to God. I'm sure God would value my, uh, you know, my, my devotions if I go down that religion or I follow this creed or if I just be a very good person. Surely God will accept that. Well, the problem you have is in John chapter 14, we have this verse. and We've only got half of it up on the wall here. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then what does he go on to say? He says, no one comes to the Father except through me. And Jesus was quite clear about that. He didn't say there are many ways to God. He said, I am the only way and the truth and the life. It's an uncompromising stand, but it's said with love. Because the overriding theme of the Bible is God is love. But God's love is not just dished out on you so that you can go and abuse it. God defines love in a very different way to us. But let's look at love. So let's look at what we would call love. Firstly, let's talk about world whoop, go backwards. Let's talk about worldly love. Okay? The way we think about it. What, now, what does the Bible tell you? First of all, it says, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. You see, this is getting tricky. Because all those things that you consider the most important, your reason for existence, are being called into question by Jesus. I had a conversation some time ago. Um, some of you know I'm a, I'm a member of the Christian Motorcyclists Association. If you want to ask what that's all about, come and talk to me afterwards. But we were out at a, a motorcycle rally, and a guy came up to me and got talking about He says, what's this, you know, Christians on motorbikes? What's that all about? And I said, well, look, let me talk to you about what I believe. And he eventually said, well, I, I don't know. He says, he said, um, I, I think the only thing that matters, and he had a little girl with him, lovely little girl. She was cutie. She was only about four. Um, he says, I think all that matters, he says, my purpose in this world is to bring up the next generation. And then that's it. And I said, is that your, is that your highest aspiration for life? He said, that's all I can think of. And for some people, our children, our future, is the most important thing. And people lavish time and energy on their children. And very sadly, sometimes our children go off and do the things that we don't want them to. Because they're individuals. Some people, it's their money, it's their possessions. For some people, as long as they've got the house, and they've got the cars, and they've got the great job, and they've got the social life, and they can eat out in posh restaurants, if they've got all that, they're made. There was a man in the Bible said that. He was a rich man. He was prosperous. He had a great farming business, and he had done so well, and he had increased his crops 
that he realized he didn't have enough room to store all the massive quantity of crops. So he said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to pull down my barns. I'm going to build new ones, huge ones, to store all these crops so I can trade. And, and then I'm going to take some ease. I'm going to rest and say, it's all over to me. I can eat, drink, and relax. And do you know what God said? He said, you're a fool. Tonight, your soul will be required. And the man died that night. Didn't take it with him, did he? Shrouds have no pockets. I've quoted that one before. All the wealth in the world doesn't sort you in the eyes of God. If anything, it distracts you. Do not love what is in the world. Now, that's not to say you're in the world, you have to live in the world. It's not wrong to have a nice house, not wrong to have a nice car, not wrong to... It's, it, none of these things are wrong in and of themselves, but if they matter to you more than God, more than the Lord Jesus Christ, then yes, you've got a problem. Because the Bible says very clearly, and I spoke about it over the last few weeks, that you're not just signing up to a club when you come to church. You're not following a religious club. Pay the subscription every year and you're in. It's not like that. This isn't the golf club. It's not the squash club. It's not the tennis club. It's not the local rotary club or the British Legion or any of the... All great things to belong to if you're interested in that stuff, but this is not a club. This is life. What did Jesus say? It's the way. It's the truth. It's the life. This matters. But the problem is, with worldly love, we are exactly like some people that are described in the Bible. And you might not think yourself, no, I don't think anybody here, and I hope not, considers themselves terribly religious and terribly upright. Because generally speaking, most people who are Christians, we don't think that we're better than everybody else. More than not, the reason we're Christians is because we realise we're not. Because we realise actually we're pretty messy people. That we are sinners and we have fallen short of God's standard and we're not the best citizens in the universe. And, and it's actually a very humbling thing to realise that in the sight of God, I'm not really anybody special. Or am I? We'll come to that in a minute. But firstly, on this question of worldly love, Jesus spoke to the Pharisees who were the top religious guys in the Jewish nation in his day. You could not find more religious men more upright men, more men who were important in society. They had power, they had position. And Jesus said to them, you are the children of your father, the devil, and you love to do the evil things he does. I deliberately picked that translation because that says it to me exactly. You love to do evil things. Why do people do wrong things? Do you know why? Because there's actually some gain in it for them. Why do people rob banks? Because they want money. Because they're lust for wealth and power without having to work for it. Why do people kill others? Because they want their own way, because they hate someone, because they want to vent their anger and their nastiness. There are so many reasons. Why do people commit adultery? That's one of the Ten Commandments. Why do men run off with other women? Why do women cheat behind their husband's back? Why do these things happen? Because we enjoy it. Because there's that secret, guilty desire that we want to do these things. 
and exactly what Jesus said to people who on the outside look really religious and really upright, he says, you are of your father the devil. Now, as I said the other week, can you imagine going up to, I don't know, <laughs> okay, let's, let's go for it this week, going up to the Pope and saying, you are of your father the devil. Apart from the fact you'd probably be arrested on the spot by the Swiss guards is another matter. But, can you imagine, because that's more or less what Jesus did. He took the religious hierarchy of the day and he told them they were sinners, they were evil, and they were doing the devil's work. Whoa! Whew. Okay, take a breath. But naturally, human beings do the things that displease God. Why? Because the Bible says we're sinners. What does sin mean? It's simple. You disobey God's commands. God has set rules, and we choose not to obey them. The things that he says we should do, we don't do. The great apostle Paul talks about this at one point. He says, the things that I know I should do, I don't do. And the things I know I shouldn't do, I do. Because I've got this horrible old flesh nature. This old man that doesn't want to live for God. But what did we read in John chapter 14? God puts his Holy Spirit into the believer's heart. And he's there to guide you into truth, to sustain you and lead you through your Christian life. If you're a Christian today, don't neglect to understand exactly what the Holy Spirit's work should be in your life. It's told you here in this book. There's enough information to help you understand exactly what the work the Holy Spirit should be doing through you every day of every week. I encourage you, church, to study what the Bible says about the Holy Spirit. Because there is a lot of teaching around today that sort of teaches a total imbalance. It's like you've got this kind of magic power, and yet... What does it talk about, the Holy Spirit? It actually talks about you leading you into truth. It talks about those, the fruits of the Spirit being things like peace, joy, long-suffering, patience. The, the, the kind of character traits that we like to see in a person and don't often see. The Holy Spirit is about reforming you from the inside out. But let's go on to this question of worldly love. You see, the Bible says... And this is, this is one of Paul's letters to the, the church at Ephesus. And he's saying about the Ephesian church, he said, look, you were like this. We all used to live amongst the worldly people, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving wrath. What does he mean by that? We're deserving the judgment of God. And you say, wow, that's a bit strong. Judgment of God? Hang on a minute. We all started talking about love, and now you're talking about judgment. The Bible overwhelmingly teaches that God is love. But the Bible also tells us that God is just. God cannot, it says, behold sin. It cannot look on sin. It says he has purer eyes than to look upon sin. And so he has to judge it. 
So how does he reconcile the fact that you and I are messy, sinful human beings who've messed up, who've broken God's laws, who've displeased him by going our own way, by following the desires of our hearts and doing the work of the devil? Because basically that's where you are if you don't know Christ. That's where we all were, those of us who know Jesus as our saviour. That's where I was. I was a mess. And I'm still a bit of a mess. I'm just work in progress. But that's what we used to do. We used to satisfy our own desires. Some people satisfy their desires by indulging in their hobbies and passions. Others satisfy by eating their great food or even rubbish food and just eating too much of it. Some people, their passion is just to watch TV all day and they end up with square eyes. Some people, it's playing on the PlayStation all day. Other people, it's running around living in a loose and immoral life but they're satisfying their lusts and desires. That eros love, that that, that lustful, self-serving love that fulfills your own lusts and passions, but gives nothing for God. You ready for it? Three Sundays, three sermons, the Bob Dylan song, right? (laughs) I'm, I'm sorry, I am a Bob Dylan fan, in case you hadn't noticed. But Bob wrote a song called Watered Down Love. It was on the third of his so-called gospel albums. Um, and uh, it's an interesting verse. It's love that's pure. It don't make no false claims. It intercedes for you instead of casting you blame. It will not deceive you or lead you to transgression. Won't write it up and make you sign a false confession. And then his chorus is this. Is you don't want a love that's pure. You want to drown love You want a watered-down love. And do you know what? That is exactly what our society is like today. People don't want real love. They don't want the kind of love that actually counts. They want a wishy-washy, easy, sloppy love that just satisfies their own desires. As Bob says in that song, he says, you don't, you, you, you don't want true love, you don't want pure love, you want a watered-down love, you want to actually drown it, you want to stifle it, you just want watered-down love. And do you know what I think for most people today? The shallow rom-coms that are on TV, the, 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 the romantic books that, I'm sorry ladies, but generally speaking, you're the ones who read them, because us men, you know, we, we try and pretend we don't like it, but... You know, we, we just like our romance a little bit, um, I would say actually we like our romance a little bit more action-based and a little more lustful. So men, you're not off the hook. <laughs> you know, watching James Bond doing his stuff. I think James Bond must be a classic example of how to break all ten commandments in one hit. But do you know what? Everybody thinks, wow, it's great, you know, the, the great secret agent. Not much secret about him, he'd have been pretty useless as a spy, everybody knew who he was. But, but honestly... Isn't that it? And we all wait. And you know, I've got to be honest. Bond films are fun to watch, but remember what you're watching. You're watching pretty much every one of God's laws being broken gratuitously for pleasure and for entertainment. I mean, not that I expect movies to edify you. That you know the. People who say, oh, he's a Christian, I watched that movie and I got something out of it. And I think, yeah, there's an awful lot that I shouldn't have as well. But, you know, that's our life. That's, our, that's the world we live in. It's not pure. It's not true. 
Okay, so now let's look at how, we've looked at worldly love, now let's look at wise love. In Psalms, the psalmist says this, he says, it's time for you to act, Lord. Your law is being broken because I love your commands more than gold, more than pure gold, and because I consider all your precepts right, I hate every wrong path. Now this is getting wise. Because if you're going to one day have to face the judge of the universe, if you're going to one day have to face him and answer for the deeds done in the body, you are going to be in a sticky wicket if you haven't reconciled and sorted out your problem with the fact you've been a command breaker for so long. And yet the psalmist, he understands, it's time for you to act, Lord. You know, the one thing the Lord hasn't done in this day and age, he hasn't acted. You read in the Old Testament, there were times when he acted in judgment upon those who sinned against him. God graciously withholds his hand at the moment because he's given us another way. But the psalmist understood, your law is being broken. I mean, we all watch detective shows and cop shows, and the basic thing is that at the end of the day, the bad guy gets caught. In life, sadly, it doesn't always work quite as well as that. But basically, the good guys, okay, they're not always quite as good as they should be, but at the end of the day, the bad guy gets caught and gets killed or sent to jail or whatever. And I think there is within human beings a natural understanding that there needs to be justice in the world. It's amazing the people who will moan about the police until their own house is burgled and then they wonder why the police aren't there to help them. But we're like that with God. We'll moan about, oh, I don't like this religion. Oh, if this God wants me to follow him and insists I have to do this and I can't do that, who does he think he is? Then something bad goes wrong. Where was God? Why didn't he help me? Heard that? There's a disaster. Where was God on 9-11? Where was God when that car ploughed into people on Westminster Bridge? I'll tell you where God was. He was exactly where the people on Westminster Bridge probably wanted him. Out of their life. You can't say to God, I'm going to live my way, I'm going to ignore your laws, I'm going to do what I want, and then expect him to turn up like some kind of um, errand boy to just help you out. There we are, there's another Bob Dylan line for you. God isn't an errand boy to satisfy your wandering desires. He's not a celestial genie. If you've ever watched the movie Aladdin, he's not someone who comes out of a bottle and goes, poof, what are your wishes? I'll do whatever you want. That's not God. That's fine for a myth, that's fine for fantasy, that's fine for a bit of a laugh with the kids, but that's not how the world works. God expects there to be justice. But because of his love... He offers a way for us to deal with that. A way to be reconciled to a God who knows that we've broken his laws. Love has to be wise. And the wisest way to deal with love is to do what God commands. Love his commands. More than gold. More than pure gold. Gold was an amazing commodity. It still is today, but it was a really important commodity in the age of the psalmist. It was probably the most expensive and most precious thing you could own. And here the psalm writer is saying, I love your commands, God, more than gold. I consider your precepts right. He's come to a conclusion, this God who I worship, he's right. And I'm wrong. That's always a hard one, because as human beings, we don't like to admit we're wrong. 
We don't like to think that somebody knows better than us. And we certainly don't like to think that there's somebody out there who's demanding that we get right with them. Do you hate wrong paths? The opposite of love is hate. Do you hate that which God hates? Most of what goes on in this world, people love what God hates. Our politicians, our governments are making laws saying this is okay. The Bible tells you quite clearly God hates it. But we're living in a land where what God hates is being put into law. Where people don't realise things are going on in our country, things that in polite Western society are seen as okay. And where abortion clinics murder babies on a regular basis all over the world because apparently we can. Apparently it doesn't matter. Until it's a recognisable baby, which sadly they generally are from about 12 weeks onwards. But apparently no, we can keep aborting. That's just one example. God's word. You need to read the condemnation God talks about those who offend against his little ones. It's pretty, pretty, pretty serious. God doesn't see murder in any other terms. But let's talk about real love. What does the Bible define real love? Now this isn't the love that you find in movies. This is the kind of love that actually counts. This is a love that God's standard for love. He said in 1 Corinthians 13 we find love is patient. It is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonour others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Got a short memory. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. That, that verse, those four, the three verses alone, to me, speak volumes about what true, real love is. So if that's real love, how has God shown that real love to us? Well, this is the verse that everybody is probably expecting me to quote, and you're dead right, I'm going to. It's one of the most famous verses in the Bible. And it really is an amazing verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And in that one verse from John chapter 3 and verse 16, you have the whole story of why Christ came. Why? It's there. God loves the world. He created it. He created it and sustained it. He put the human race upon its face. He put the animals upon its face. He gave us a mind and a heart and a spirit to worship him. And we've turned from him and we've disobeyed him and we've broken all his laws and we've dishonoured him and defiled ourselves in the process. But because of his love for us, he gave his only son. He took his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, he put him in a man's body and he went and suffered a death on a cross. Not some accident of history. Something that was actually prophesied in the Old Testament 700 odd years before 
and came true exactly. You say, oh yeah, but that's because, you know, people wrote the Bible to try and make it all fit. No, they didn't. The manuscripts are there. We know. You go back to Old Testament prophecy, 700 years before Jesus came, and they describe him being put up on a tree, which is interesting because that's not how the Jews used to kill people. And the Roman Empire hadn't, been, hadn't arrived at that point. The Jews used to stone people to death. And a Jewish writer would understand that to judicially kill someone, you had to stone them. But when the Romans came along, they introduced crucifixion. 700 years before that, a prophet of God said that the Messiah would be crucified. And lo and behold, 700 years later, that's exactly what happened. And somewhere around AD 29, the Lord Jesus Christ was hanged on a cross and was crucified. Why? Because the Bible tells us this was part of God's plan. And I know we've seen, perhaps you've seen pictures, um, maybe some of you have seen Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion of the Christ, and it's all very gory and all very, uh, all very, very terrible. I would suggest to you that's not really the worst bit. That's what man did to Jesus Christ. But it says that God poured out his wrath upon him for sin. He became our, he took our place. He became what the Bible in the Old Testament referred to as a scapegoat. You know what the term is, oh, you're the scapegoat, you're the one who takes the blame. Well, that goes back to Old Testament, that goes back to Jewish custom. The idea that the sins would be put upon this goat and then it would be shoved out and made to run outside of the camp and leave, taking the sins of the people with it. It was symbolic, it had no actual effect, but Jesus Christ, it says, went outside of the camp. That same idea. Bearing our sins in his body on the cross. And that's the love that God has for you. Even though you've broken his commands, even though I've broken his commands, even though I have been messed up, I have polluted my life, my thinking, my body, everything I have done in my life has not been glorifying to God. But it doesn't matter because I've put my faith in Jesus Christ, knowing that he has paid the price for me. And that's what he asks. He asks you to love his commandments and to keep his commandments. Because, as we said in that last verse we looked at, or one of the verses we looked at in John 14, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. Again, he repeats, these words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. And so Jesus makes it very clear, very clear. Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. If you love me, keep my commandments, he says in another place. What are the commands of God? It's the Word of God. Today, people treat the Bible like it was just some piece of historical literature. It's more than that. I believe sincerely, and I believe there's very good evidence for it, that this is the revealed Word of God for today. That it's as accurate and as completely trustworthy today as when it was originally written. 
and it was originally written, 66 books, some 40-something authors, over a period of a couple of thousand years. But it all hangs together as a whole and has been tested by history and by people down through history to be reliable and to hold the words of truth. People's lives are changed and transformed by this book and by the teaching within it like nothing else. There are more copies of this book in the world than any other book in the world. And more people come and read it and understand its truth and realize that God loved the world and gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. So who do you love? That's the question you need to be asking yourself today. What matters most to you in life, but more urgently, never mind what you love in this world, it will not save you. It will condemn you to judgment. But God in his love, because he loves you. Who does God love? He loves you. He loves you so much, he gave his own son in place of you. But you can only come into the good of that if you put your faith and trust in him. If you say, Lord, I love you and I'm going to follow you and I'm going to obey you and I'm going to keep your commands as best as I can. What did Jesus say? He says, I will send you a counsellor. I will send the Holy Spirit to those who love me, to those who put their faith and trust in me. And the Holy Spirit, the helper, he's described in, in verse 26. He said, the Father will send in my name. He will teach you all things and bring you to remembrance all that I have said to you. So he doesn't leave us to flounder on our own. When you come to Christ in faith and repentance for your sin, he gives you the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit guides you into truth as you read his word, as you spend time in prayer, as you commune with God. He, day by day, he will help you and give you the strength and resources to follow and keep the commands of the Lord. Because those who love me, as Jesus said, keep my commandments. Who do you love? It's a question I'm going to throw out there. You have to answer it in your own hearts before God. We're going to pray. And just very quietly, we're just going to think about these things. Then as I finish praying, and commend you all, please stay. There's tea and coffee next door. It would be a delight to have you. A delight to, uh, to share a bit of time with you and spend time chatting. But more to the point, if you've got any questions on anything I've said, whether you want to talk to me or any of the other Christians who are here at the church, we'll all be delighted to share with you our experience of Jesus Christ and why we believe him to be the way, the truth, and the life. And why we believe that no one comes to the Father except through him. So shall we pray? Our God, when we consider love, that word means so many things to different people. But real love, the love that you speak about, is found in our Lord Jesus Christ and in what he did. That great sacrificial, self, self-sacrificing love that he cared so much that he was prepared to undergo not only the pain and the, the scorn of men as a man, but also the wrath of God poured out upon him. God took himself the burden on his own son. Lord, we can't begin to understand just how amazing that is. And just how that he sent his son 
to ransom us, to redeem us, to, to pay that price. Lord, we're in the grip of Satan and his world system. Our, our desires and our passions and our lusts are invested in ourself and our, our clothing and our possessions and our cars and our homes and our families and our sports and our, our hobbies and our work and all the things that, Lord, we think matter in this world. And yes, Lord, they matter, but they don't matter as much as where we stand before the God of the universe. Lord, we know we're not talking to some grey-haired old man on a cloud. Lord, that's a, a vile depiction that people have painted. But Lord, we know we're speaking to the God of the universe who is outside of space and time and is so powerful that we bow before you. Because we know you would be just were you to wipe the entire human race out of existence, Lord, and we would have nothing to say. But yet, Lord, you didn't do that. Your love poured out in through your Son, that you love the world, that you gave him, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but will have eternal life. Not just eternal life, Lord, but a life of a quality, of amazing quality, in the presence of Christ, rejoicing in joy evermore, without sin, without pain without tears, without crying, but in the presence of the one whom we love. Lord, this is wonderful and we look forward to the day when we will stand before Jesus and we will praise his name and say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of us. The whole earth is full of his glory. Father, we thank you and praise you for your son this morning. We just want to ask ourselves the question, Lord, as we walk out of here and just Christian, non-Christian alike, just who do we love? Where is our real love? Where is our affection? Where is the core of our being focused, Lord? Just pray that we'll consider that in our hearts. So, Lord, now we just ask your blessing as we part. We just pray and have a time of fellowship. And as we spend the rest of this day, Lord, might we think on these things and on your word. We ask your blessing then and through the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit, Lord, as we go out of here. The blessing of God will be upon each and every one of us. And the power of the message will speak to the hearts of each and every one of us. And the Holy Spirit will convict us of our need to follow the Saviour. We ask this for the glory of Jesus Christ, our Saviour. Amen.